0: Hey guys, this is the Real Life Monopoly podcast. This is your co-host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my partners and brothers, Kenneth and Kerwin Donis. We are real estate investors, and the point of our podcast is to help you reach your financial goals, which will allow you to have time to focus on your true passion so that you can live not only a happier but more fulfilled life. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to today's show. Today we'll be having Spencer Gray. Spencer is the president of Gray Capital he has been involved in over $700 million worth of real estate transactions, and he is also the president and CEO of Gray Properties, which is a commercial real estate-focused office. We were fortunate enough to have Spencer on the show today, so without further ado, let's get right to it. Thank you for tuning in with the Donis Brothers. This is your co-host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my brother, Kerwin Donis. Today on the show, we'll be having Spencer. Spencer, do you mind introducing yourself to the audience?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Appreciate Jeffrey. Thanks, Kerwin. Really appreciate you guys having me on. Um, I'm president, and CEO of a firm called Gray Capital, based out of Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, we focus on uh, stabilized acquisitions of large multifamily assets, typically 200 units and above. Um, and yeah, we focus on value add strategies as well as core plus strategies, looking to generate cash flow and uh, overall, you know, pretty um, outsized returns for our investors
0: do you mind going into how you got started in real estate and what your background was if there was something that you were involved before that
1: yeah no sure so i got started in real estate um by after a friend i was still in high school and um a friend of mine approached me and his father had been flipping homes and this was prior to the great recession and um he said you know i want to teach basically said i want to teach my son how to flip homes get into real estate and part of that was you know he told us son, you really should go out and find a partner you know real estate's a team sport and so i got i got wrapped in didn't know anything about real estate didn't know anything about flipping outside of you know sounds great people need a place to live and uh you know sounds fun it would be a good summer project um so we both borrowed some money from our parents and um you know learned a lot along the way learned a lot of what i'm not good at and what um, i'm probably better suited for And, you know, we really didn't make any money on that flip, you know, credit started tightening up, people couldn't get loans, but this was a relatively kind of a low income demographic target for the flip someone who usually shouldn't be able to be approved for a loan, but that's what was going on, you know, prior to 2007. Um, And so we turned into a rental eventually sold it, but that kind of ignited that spark to be interested in real estate going forward. And real estate was always kind of a thing I was doing on the side after that, Um, I went to college, I I went to music school down at Indiana University, I wanted to get into music production, run a recording studio, I wanted to run my own business but I was very passionate about music at the time, still am but I wanted to turn that into a career uh, back then. And you know, at some point, I was doing that, but getting a little bit burned out. Um, I was doing a lot of work for Audible.com, doing a lot of audiobook production, which really isn't what I got in the industry to do. And um, so I had an opportunity to start another business, um, selling and distributing hops for the craft beer industry. We qu- quickly grew to being one of the the larger firm, the largest firm in the Midwest, one of the larger firms, really in the U.S. At least on the fastest growing firms. Ended up selling that business around 2015, um, and I still had a real estate kind of in the back of my mind throughout the entire process. And so my wife and I, who my wife's been my business partner um, for you know well over a decade at this point. Uh, Before we got married. And we said, you know, we love real estate. We'd been learning about multifamily apartments, these larger scale kind of buy and hold way to generate cash flow, to build long term wealth. And we said, you know, this is the strategy that we want to pursue. And so we just started networking and meeting people and just kind of getting in the middle of things. And um, eventually we did our first um, investment as a co-general partner with a local operator who knew a lot more about the industry than we did. So we were able to leverage his experience, his track record. We also made some just passive LP investments at that time just to, again, just learn more about how other operators operate. And then over time, kind of since then, over the past five to six years, we've been growing our own teams, our own systems, and uh, we started doing our own projects as a lead sponsor in addition to, you know, co-sponsoring projects. And over the past uh, six years, we've been able to invest in about 9,000 apartment units and uh, currently have uh, about $500 million in assets under management uh, that we have a controlling interest in.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I mean, we also started in the single family space and a lot of people that we've had on the show started there and obviously for like the multiple different reasons, economies of scale and all that ended up transferring into multifamily. Do you mind going more into, uh, sorry, let not just repeat that. Do you mind going more into your first deal and how you got started? I know that you mentioned that you partnered up with a yep. co-sponsor who had experience. Do you mind touching on why you chose that partner? And can you go into the details as to what the deal was and what the business plan was?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So at the time, you know, we were trying to figure out how to do things on our own. And so we were again, like I said, we were meeting with a lot of individuals, anyone who would, you know, take 15, 30 minutes to meet with us, grab a cup of coffee or lunch. And we had learned about this financing vehicle, um, HUD 223F financing, which, you know, to us seemed like very attractive terms at that time. You know, non-recourse financing, 35 year term, 35 year amortization, low interest rate. um, It's assumable. And um, so we met with a lender that we were introduced to, and we said, you know, we want to buy an apartment building, here's one that we're looking at, you know, with this work, and, you know, we'd like to take it down with a HUD 223F loan. And he said, great, you know, we lend on this, absolutely, looks like a good deal, but... Unfortunately, you don't qualify for this type of financing. Um, you just don't have the experience. You, know, you don't have a track record of managing and owning apartments. Even if you have other real estate experience, you don't have the right experience. So, but what you can do is if you find someone who has done a couple of these and partner with them, you, know, you could be a part of the you know, GP or just a part of the investment group um and gain experience that way he said and you know just happens to be that i'm working with an operator who has done a couple deals you know they're relatively small but they're growing quickly why don't i put you in touch with uh you two in touch with each other so we did um started having conversations you know we still want to do our own deals but we just all of a sudden the door opened to maybe we should consider partnering with someone and it was over about a year period of you know getting together lunches just talking about the industry talking about investing um you know him Suggesting and trying to get us to invest into his deals, but we were like well I don't know if we want to really invest in someone else's deal we want to do our own deal but finally he kind of explained what the syndication model was because we really weren't familiar with syndication that syndications at that point in time and some of the advantages of being on the GP side you know you're going to be able to get an LP level of returns, but having a percentage of the GP those returns will accelerate and uh, it looked pretty attractive and kind of a best of both worlds scenario where we didn't exactly have to do all the work have the entire teams all the processes systems in place we could really leverage his teams and systems um, while we gained experience but we would also have all the advantages of being a you know a passive investor um, with that added bonus of being in the gp so we decided to partner with him and eventually developed a programmatic relationship with that operator um, to be a co-sponsor on his, his projects going forward um, we've done about 10 coGP gp projects with that group, continue to do projects with them today. And that has allowed us to build out our own team systems and start sponsoring our own projects.
0: Uh, to go into how, you know, your your thought process through choosing to go with a sponsor since you guys didn't have that track record. I have multiple different friends who, and I'm obviously our audience, who are looking to get into multifamily Is that what you recommend other people do go find that co-sponsor who they can leverage or would you say maybe join a mentorship like what is the best route to get into multifamily if you're new
1: yeah well i think you know and to your point you have to get some level of experience you know and it can come from partnering with someone it can come from doing your own deals but you have to have some kind of track record and experience you don't have to be doing all of it and so it really depends on where somebody is and what kind of you know value they can create and you know what they're capable of so i mean if you are doing single-family homes if you're you know if you're flipping if you have the you know operational capability of continuing to invest on your own i mean that's a great way you know to build a track record but it doesn't necessarily align with you know multi investing and so it's, it's a little bit different but even that experience in doing you know single-family homes duplexes small multifamily, i mean that that will definitely help but I mean, at the end of the day, real estate is a team sport. I don't care how big the deal is; you're going to have to find partners to some degree. I mean, you're going to have to you know bring people onto your team. And so, if you're not in a position to take down the types, of you want to, you know, joining another group, whether it is as a co general partner, if you can bring enough value, or just as um, a passive limited partner, where you know you're getting still you know solid return. You're not doing really any much, any work besides vetting the sponsor, or the deal, and the market. Um, that that both of those avenues can be um, very powerful. I don't have as much experience on the you know like the like the the I guess more paid mentor route. I have mentors, and I think having mentors are great. Although I've never you know asked anyone to be my mentor, it's just they're you know, business partners who know more than I do and you know we stay in touch and we have a good relationship um so i think having people like that is key and i but i I know plenty of people who have paid for you know a membership or a mentorship or getting into some kind of program and that does work because then you're involved in a community you can kind of bounce ideas off of people inform those teams and partnerships and so you know if you don't necessarily have access to somebody who's already doing this um, another operator you can pick their brain you know i'm that that easily could be a good avenue that's just that's not the route that we took because we were just fortunate enough to be able to make a lot of those connections organically and i would say that pretty much all the information that you can get uh, or that you need to really get involved in multifamily investing it's all available available for free somewhere online so again i mean i i've paid for education i've paid for courses it's good to invest in yourself but be aware everything is available for free online through podcasts, books, videos. Um, So you know, I would, I guess, caution somebody who doesn't know anything to spend a significant amount of money. I think if you already have a trajectory, you know what you're doing a little bit, and then you can use maybe a paid course or a paid mentor to kind of accelerate to move you to the next step. That makes sense. But if you're a total beginner and you're just starting out, I would be a little skeptical to just jumping into a, a paid program before you take advantage of all the free resources out there.
2: Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Um, before we invested at all within the our education for um, the multifamily, we read a lot of books, listened to podcasts, and all that was free. And, I mean, of course, we're still doing that, but I think that it's absolutely important to, like, not be stuck in analysis paralysis, but also um, take some time to learn it because especially compared uh, – single-family compared to multifamily, it's a little more complex. So um, I think it's really important that those people just take take that time. Um, and I did want to touch on something that you mentioned earlier about the previous businesses you did. You um, said you were involved with Audible, and you also um, had beer, beer Tops, I believe is what you said. Uh, I'd beer love tops, to know yeah. how you – yeah, sorry. I, I would love to know how you um, took – what you took from those businesses and what you learned from that and how you applied that into multifamily and I'm just curious did you when you approached investors did you leverage your previous background um in order to kind of just establish that credibility with those investors
1: yeah no, that's a good question um and so on the last part of your um your question you know, absolutely I think that was um a, a big advantage to us is that we were, you know, exiting a business and we had, you know, a, we had a track record of success and being organized and, you know, doing what we said we were going to do. And so we had a, you know, small, you know, pool of investors, you know, essentially friends and family who were like, okay, you know, Spencer and Alex, my wife, you know, they know what they're doing. You know, they are, you know, capable enough of, you know, taking a project and, you know, pursuing it and doing what's right. So that definitely was, you know, a springboard. Now it's not everything, you know, someone who's done well in one business, it doesn't always translate but you know, at the same time, you know, business is business and good business practices in one is industry you know, do translate, um, you know, from my days, you know, um, as an audio engineer, um, and you're know, doing a lot of work from audible, um, you know, it, it translates in, 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 many ways, um, but not always directly. I mean, it translates right now. Um, you know, like I said, I used to be an audio engineer, so, you know, I've got a nice microphone and, you know, way too much money in studio equipment than I need for a podcast. Um, but, you know, we have been focusing on, you know, more content creation, um, whether it's YouTube videos, we're working on our own podcast, um, and so, you know, it, for me, it's almost like fun. I get to use kind of my, my technical background to do some of this stuff that does have an impact. Um, I wouldn't say it's, you know, necessary, you know, I could have zero experience and I could be talking out of my phone or my laptop and it would do the, you know, essentially the same thing. Um, so, um, you know, I, so the entrepreneurial side and building a business has much more of an effect and influences what we do more than, you know, just my, a lot of my technical background, but, you know, I, I do still get to have fun with it and, uh, utilize it when I can.
0: Awesome. And to kind of go into, uh, something that I did see on your website, it's awesome. I looking at your YouTube page and I saw you have a lot of great content. Um, and I can see those technical skills that you're putting into play to go into one of the things that that kind of caught my attention. Uh, you'd mentioned that you guys like to use the preservation of principle. Uh, that's kind of like a slogan I saw. Yeah. Do you mind kind of going into that and what that is?
1: Yeah, sure. So I mean, it comes back to Warren Buffett's rule of, you know, of the first rule of investing is, you know, you don't lose money. And that's when we kind of started, you know, we wanted to find great investments and a great investment vehicles and great asset classes. But, um, you know, if you lose money, it's all for naught. you know, getting a great return. Uh, is a great idea. But if you if you lose money, you've got to work twice as hard or even more than twice as hard to make that back. And so standing at a just at a foundation of, you know, we want to pursue projects that are are going to work and that are protected from the downside, and even in a worst case scenario, they're still going to, you know, make some return, beat inflation, and we're not going to lose any money. So, like when we're looking at a project and we're underwriting it like, you know, we have, you know, our our base case assumptions where we think this is somewhat reasonable, let's err on the side of being conservative, you know, we'll look at all right maybe a higher growth scenario, but then okay, then let's break the model and look at a worst case scenario. So let's bring rent growth to zero. Um, And even with some expense growth, you know, let's what if our interest rate rises significantly? What if vacancy drops? You know, what are all of our break evens? And really, Seeing where the model starts to break down, and if we find ourselves in this situation or that situation, if we have a hard time really kind of extrapolating what it would cause to, you know, wreck the deal that much, you know, okay, well, we're at ninety-five percent occupancy. Can we go down? How how would we go down to you know seventy percent occupied? How do how do we lose thirty percent of our resident bases Could that happen? And you know what in the market's going to happen to get zero percent rent growth for an extended period of time? And are both of those things going to happen you know simultaneously? And if that scenario of a worst case scenario seems very far fetched the more extreme it is, the more comfortable. But we want to make sure that okay, even in that you know really extreme downside scenario, you know when we look at our model, okay, well, you know we're getting a 10 percent IRR over a 10 year period. You know, that's not what we shoot for by any means, but okay, so you've made sort of an average of 10%, you know, on your money over 10 years, you know, you're basically hitting what the average S&P 500 does. So we're relatively comfortable in a sense that, you know, not only are we going to, you know, not lose any money on this project, but we're going to still at least, you know, beat inflation and at least try to track um, what the stock market does.
0: Hmm. That's something that I kind of want to go into also. I saw I was watching one of your videos and you mentioned there are some of the boxes that you always look to check when you're underwriting a deal to go along with that principle of preserving the cap or the principle. Can you go into those, some of those uh, boxes that you like to check and some of the things that you make sure a deal has before you move further and uh, maybe just submit an LOI or uh, the next stage of the process?
1: Sure. Yeah. So yeah, we, we have a checklist. Um, we have a checklist for a market and we have a checklist, you know, for the deal itself. And, you know, we, you know, unlike some groups who you know operate in you know a lot of different markets you know we stay relatively concentrated on the markets that we know best you know starting with our our backyard in indianapolis and some other markets in the midwest um and so from a market standpoint you know we start from kind of the basic demographic check boxes so you know population growth you know it has to be positive and really we want to see it over one percent annualized um job growth we also want to see that being positive we want to see some positive wage growth. Um, and then this is in like the the total market, but also the sub market. And then you're diving down into a, you know, one mile radius, five, three mile, five mile, seven mile radius, you know, from the asset itself, it has to continue to check those boxes. Because even if the overall market's growing, if your sub market, your location is declining in value, you know, that that's a disqualifier right there. Um, also in the market, we want to look for you know some kind of story that translates the tangible drivers of the economy, and so whether it's industries moving in, headquarters moving in, um, you know some kind of shift in demographics or migration, you know what's really driving that market tells a very clear story. But then that story can be backed up by empirical data and evidence um, that we can you know, show for ourselves, and also help our investors kind of understand that story. And then and then for the project itself, you know we we have a you know a long checklist of criteria and some of its return criteria, you know, some of it is, you know, more practically just the type of asset. So we're typically looking for properties that are over 100 units, kind of 100 being on the smaller side. But ideally, we'd like to see closer to 200 units or above. So it kind of has to be in that scale. And really that comes down to can you afford on-site management and an on-site team to easily manage the asset itself um you know we also um want to see that there is you know a sufficient risk premium for the project itself so looking at our return criteria you know for a um, value-add project more of a workforce housing play we'd like to see a higher degree of cash on cash so you know closer to an eight percent cash on cash out of the gate trending to double digits after three years and hopefully a double-digit cash on cash return you know, throughout the, the life of the project, at least an average of 10% cash on cash over the life of the deal. You know, a newer project, maybe a core plus asset, you know, built in 2010 or so, will accept lower cash on cash, closer to 7%. You know, trailing or um, trending to like a 9%. Um, and but on either of those strategies, we're trying to hit a 15% IRR, and so making sure either of those strategies has you know enough return in the project itself to make us feel confident. Looking at it at a base case model, um, not looking at it at a high growth or, you know, using a a low exit cap rate. But let's use a conservative assumption if you can check all these boxes and then it passes our stress test. So, you know, a break even occupancy that, you know, usually isn't higher than 75 percent unless there's some reason why we think that growth can get us out of that break even occupancy in a quick in a short period of time. Um, you know we want to see a debt service coverage ratio, you know usually um, hopefully above one point two five. We'd like to see it closer to one point four or one point five um, really in the in the first year. Um, and you know we want to make sure that if there's if there is like a, we're using a bridge loan and we're going to be using a secondary loan to take that bridge loan out. We want to make sure that if interest rates rise um, significantly, that the project still makes sense. And so using a higher interest rate on that takeout, you know, the deal still cash flows, and can still check uh, most of those boxes. And then you know, looking at especially if we're looking at a market that is not directly near us, it's a little bit further away, just the logistics of management and can we put the teams in place and the business plan together where we can effectively manage um, the project that that's another key piece.
0: And to kind of touch on the models and strategies that you use, you mentioned that you do value add. And I saw, I'm not sure if you mentioned it now, but on your website, you also do turnkey. Do you mind going into the differences and some of the benefits to each? Uh, Just to be honest, for us, we're mainly doing value add. That's kind of our play, but I would love to see what your thoughts on that are.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the value add, I mean, that's the, I mean, real estate, we're always looking to create value and force appreciation. And, you know, the most straightforward example is your typical workforce housing value add project, go in, hopefully you get a good basis, fix up the interiors of the units, increase rents, force appreciation. Um, another strategy, you know, like you mentioned, we call it core plus, you know, or it can be more turnkey where you essentially buy it, and there's not that that much to do. Um, Although I think that that can be a little bit deceiving because there's usually there has to be some strategy. There has to be some plan, you know, to force the value of the project and to to grow rents really just to to grow revenue. And and it isn't always growing the top line. You know, a value add project, you're looking at growing the top line revenue by increasing rents. So more of a core plus or, you know, like a turnkey strategy. We may not be looking to grow the top line as much, but we may be focusing on, um, you know, reducing expenses, burning off concessions, and then seeing what that um, what the delta in the spread is between those the current in-place rents and maybe the rents of, you know, newly delivered new construction in that submarket. So when we're going to buy a property built in the mid-2000s, 2006, 2010, 2015, you know, they may be charging uh, $1,200 a month, but the new construction down the road is charging, you know, $1,800 or $2,000 a month. And so if we can go in, and you know, maybe we're not going to hit where the rent level that they're hitting, but maybe we can narrow that gap, and we can get $50 or $100 cured of any deferred maintenance at the property, but not spend, you know, five to $10,000 per unit on a value add project, but spend you know, maybe $1,000 a unit, And so while we're only getting that $50 or $100 um, rental increase, that return on that $1,000 is significantly more, and you're not having to spend a significant amount of capital to move the rent. So it's it's less work to kind of move things um, a similar degree, and since those properties trade at a lower cap rate, um, you end up that any appreciation you do force has a higher multiple on that uh, NOI growth. So it's just a little bit of different strategy, um, and I guess to kind of to bookend that, the reason why we started looking at those more turnkey or core plus strategies is that in the market we were just um, we were witnessing that a lot of workforce housing and value add deals were really having that upside priced in. So instead of being able to buy you know a value add workforce housing deal at a seven cap, you know you raise rents and then you're operating at you know an eight or nine cap, all of a sudden they're selling for five caps and the same deal that you know for which is the same cap rate that a almost new property would be selling for and so sure you can force appreciation of the asset but maybe you can only force it to a you know a six cap or a six and a half cap as opposed to forcing it from a seven to an eight or uh eight and a half so we didn't see as much risk premium on some value-add projects which kind of opened up an opportunity for some newer newer projects
2: Cool. So I just wanted to ask you mentioned something about a burning off concessions for any of our listeners who might not be familiar with what that is. Could you explain what it is and also how you went about um, you know, essentially getting rid of those?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as a good example, we bought a property um, at the end of 2020. Um, it was a relatively new construction. It was finished in 2018 and they still had a significant amount of concessions at the property, um, about $340,000 worth of concessions per year. Now the owners had been already burning those concessions off and actually while we were under contract they were basically having their level of concessions you know every single month but a lot of our um noi growth in projections and the force appreciation you know wasn't really coming from growing the nominal rent of the property but it was just to continue to burn off those concessions and so we were able to add you know essentially three hundred thousand dollars of NOI. Um, just by reducing the levels of, of concessions. So we're not raising rent to new residents. You know, on renewals, obviously, those residents who had concessions, we have to kind of, you know, make sure that they're on board. But just by reducing the that concession level, which is somewhat typical for a new construction, we're able to, you know, increase NOI without having to raise the rent significantly. And at the same time, you know, for that property, we're also reducing expenses, you know, bring the marketing budget in line, bring the admin budget in line, um, running it just a little bit more efficiently in that way. So we're not spending renovation dollars. We're not, you know, moving the residents out and fixing the property up. We're literally just running it more efficiently, but we're still able to increase NOI and force appreciation of the asset.
0: And to kind of go back to one of the points that you touched on regarding the asset and the business plan matching the market. Do you mind going into how important that is? Because you know a lot of people that are new to this space is not something that you kind of is really talked about. And it's I feel like something it's something that comes with experience and actually have doing have done a lot of deals and having that happen.
1: Yeah. So I guess an example um, of business plans that don't match the market is I've seen groups come in to to do a value add project. And they are in this mode of, they they have a model and kind of like a cookie cutter plan that they've been successful at in other markets. And, you know, whether that's going in and, you know, gutting the units and putting in granite countertops and, you know, fully, you know, redoing the units in a market that, you know, really can't justify those rents you know they need two hundred dollars a month in rental increases to justify that renovation but really the market can only support you know maybe fifty dollars or a hundred dollars and those residents don't care about granite countertops they're looking for a nice clean place to live that's somewhat affordable um and so if your demographics aren't highly affluent and you know they are more kind of blue-collar or gray-collar jobs like it, it may not make sense to go on a full luxury build out. And so you really have to make sure your demographics in your market are matching, you know, what your what your business plan is, you know, conversely, you go into a market that does have those very affluent demographics, and you don't do that full on renovation, you don't make it, you know, kind of bring it up another level or two, you may be leaving a lot of um, money on the table just by not having the right business plan and you've kind of missed out because you could have forced appreciation significantly, but you just miss out on that opportunity.
0: Yeah. That's something that I, I definitely wanted to touch on, but to kind of go into what your goals for this year are, uh, do you mind going into what you and great capital have planned for the year? And um, you know, what, what's to come in the
1: future? Yeah, no, definitely. So uh, this year we've got a goal of a hundred million dollars in our own, um, Great capital-led sponsored acquisitions, and then we'd like to do another hundred million dollars in co-sponsored acquisitions. So you know, a total of two hundred million dollars of of deals um, in twenty twenty one. You know, we're approaching the end of Q one, and you know, we've looked at dozens of opportunities, underwritten dozens, and um, you know, we haven't found one. The market is um, very different than it was last year, very different than it was two years. Um, there's there are waves and waves of capital rushing into the multifamily space. I mean, it was one of the darlings during the coronavirus pandemic. It's an industry that worked. I'm um, not in every market, um, but very market specific. But compared to office, compared to retail, um, I've seen a lot of institutional investors who had been allocated to that space now moving over to multifamily. In addition to all the capital that was um, on the sidelines last year, now rushing to be deployed. Um, so it, it's it's gonna be a challenge this year, but we're still committed to kind of hitting those two those targets of you know two hundred million dollars in acquisitions. Um, but you know we'll we'll see how competitive the landscape gets, and it's great for our existing assets, but it's very difficult uh, to to buy right now.
0: We also like to kind of live by and tell our audiences if, even if you're not actually buying the deal, as long as you're underwriting, building those relationships, staying active, when the time comes, you'll be ready rather than just sitting on the sidelines because, uh, but the time that the deal does come, you're not going to have those relationships with the brokers and, um, you know, just you're not going to be ready to take that action and the next, next step to get that deal done. Um, exactly. But to kind of go exactly. into, yeah, and to kind of go into your why, do you mind touching on that? Um, obviously, you've been doing this business for a while and to, to kind of just keep going and have those aspirational goals every single year.
1: Yeah, you know, the big thing, you know, big uh, the big why, you know, for us is, is you know, fi- is financial autonomy, financial independence, Um, We want to have, you know, full control over our lives and uh, not be subject to, you know, whatever, you know, external forces are going on. We want to be able to take control of our time um, and to use that time um, however we see fit. It's time's the greatest resource. And so whether that's, you know, spending time with our family, you know, going, taking, uh, you know, nice vacations, um, living the life that we want, taking care of the people that we want to, being able to give back to our communities, um, you know, putting ourselves in the driver's seat and having control over our own life and our destiny. I mean, that's the overarching wise to, you know, have control over our own life. Um, And then that from that, there feeds on all of these other you know things that you want to do and kind of in other goals. But you know that financial autonomy is is the kind of the, the biggest underlying reason. And um, you know we we think that investing in multifamily assets is a great vehicle uh, to pursue that for a number of reasons. And um, that's why we're excited to help folks who have a similar vision uh, pursue that.
0: Hundred percent, and that's exactly why we're doing it as well. And a lot of people that we have on the show have that same why. Um, to kind of go into our express round where. I'll just ask you a couple of questions at a pretty quick pace and it pretty much you can tailor it towards business or your personal life, whichever you prefer. Awesome. So first question is, what is the biggest mistake you've made in real estate specifically and what did it teach you?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, The biggest mistake is, that I made in real estate is thinking that the market was too overpriced in 2013 when, before i started the hops business, um, I was looking into investing in apartments and I didn't understand the industry enough. And I thought just things were too expensive to the great recession was still kind of reverberate reverberating through. And I said, you know, I don't want to do this right now. So that, that, that's a, probably the biggest mistake of not taking action and following through because if we could have gotten some of those deals in 2013, it would have been incredible, but oh, well, you know, no regrets. Yeah.
0: Uh, to go to my second question, what is your favorite book, and if you have one for personal life or business life?
1: Yeah. So um, I've got I got one for both, and um, yeah, I don't know if it's the favorite book, my favorite book of all time, but it's definitely up there, and I've I just finished rereading it, and uh, that's uh, it's Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Um, it's a great book on negotiating and just kind of people skills and being able how to really kind of get through life and how to understand people, how to empathize with people, learning, you know, what he calls tactical empathy. Um, and it's great for, again, for anybody in life, whether it's talking to your kids, to your friends, um, cause you're not ma- manipulating, but you're really just trying to understand people. And, um, so in your personal life, but also in business, you know, in multifamily real estate, whatever it is, um, being able to understanding the desires of someone else and kind of helping them see your, um, your vision is a critical life skill. So if you haven't read it, I would definitely uh, read the audio or listen to the audio book or read the book. That's one that we
0: also read uh, a while ago and it really just changes your perspective on, on how to talk to people when it comes to negotiations because at first we were like really big on sales and I was like the acquisition guy for that single family business. And after I read that, I was like, wow, I was doing this all wrong, you know, like having a yeah, wrong I mindset. Know,
1: exactly, exactly.
2: Emphasize something that you also talked, uh, you mentioned that you reread you re- the book. Um, A lot of times I think even we do that as well. We'll read a book once and then move on and try to read as many as possible. But I think it's important to reread things like it's a textbook and study it um, because I think that's the way that you can maximize the
1: knowledge you can get from it and just uh, really take advantage of it. Yeah, no, I I agree. And especially a lot of times I'll be trying to, um, you know, I'll I'll be listening to something on Audible and I'm listening to it on, you know, 1.3 speed or whatever, trying to, you know, get through it a lot. Um, But then I'm like, okay, this was awesome. I feel like I missed a couple of things. I need to re-listen to this, you know, once or twice before it really absorbs. And you know, it's a good book if you want to do that, and you just haven't gone through it and You're like, okay, I'm done. On to the next. But absolutely, I mean, we're not just. I mean, I like you know, listening or reading books for entertainment. But if you're really trying to absorb the information, um, you have to kind of take another step, whether that's you know taking notes, highlighting, or just rereading and re-listening.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, to go into my third question, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? or that you would give someone? And what has it taught you?
1: Yeah. Um, so that, that, that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think the ability to think big on a larger scale is, and that's an easy thing to say. Um, but we, we get so focused on our, you know, just what's around us and what we can see right in front of us. And it's very difficult for anybody to see the forest through the trees and what's really possible. And really anything is possible if you take the time and build a plan and put the right steps together. And so, you know, when someone's looking at moving from doing single family homes to multifamily, that seems like such an insurmountable step, but it. it, it's absolutely possible there's i there's so many dozens of cases that it it just happened and you can do it it's just but it's the people who just put the effort in and are persistent and go forward and it's the same thing you know i look at these you know private equity groups and you know reits and they've got billions of dollars under management and it's like that just sounds so insane but it's like well you know these they're just regular mortal men just like we are they just put the plan together and you know networked and found the right people and found the guy who wants. He's like, oh, yeah, I'll write you the half a billion dollar check. They're out there. Now, I'm not saying that we're in a position to do that. or That's even something that we want to do. But it's just all about what are you pursuing. And if you don't ask for it, um, you you never know what's going to happen. I mean, I was halfway joking last year. Right? I said, guys, I've discovered that it's easier to ask for $100,000 than it is for $10,000. I think it might be the same thing to ask for a million dollars. I think that's going to be easier than asking for 100000 And I actually think it may even be easier to ask for $10 million than it is for a $1 million. Because the people who have $10 million actually have $100 million, and they have to get that money. They have a problem. And where someone who has $10,000, that may be the last $10,000. They may have $20,000. They can only do so much. Now, those people should make the right investment decisions, grow their net worth and everything. But um, just don't pigeon yourself because you're thinking of – well, you know, who am I and what can I do right now? Think bigger. And then it, it, it's about, you know, having that right, that right mindset of, um, you know, just anything's possible if you can figure it out.
2: As you, as you mentioned that I really want to emphasize, um, one thing is, yeah, I, I culture of uh, people looking for instant gratification and where they, where they can get that. And so a lot of people just aren't willing to put in the work and work without seeing results immediately. Um, so that's something that I think most people, and we're still developing that, but I think that that's what sets a lot of people um, apart from who, those who succeed and those who don't. Um, and also, um, just another occurring, reoccurring theme that we've gotten from a lot of the entrepreneurs that we've met is that um, they're not afraid to ask for help and um, to ask. And I think that's something that's so valuable and that's um, fear is what stops people. And that sometimes it gets, gets in our way of asking, you know, do you like, just making the call uh, reaching out to people and asking for help and i think that that's something that um i also want to emphasize
1: yeah no uh, you're you're absolutely right and yeah, i think people will be surprised to find that people want to help and you'd be surprised maybe you think that you're offering something and you're asked doing this big ass but they're actually like they're going to discover or you'll discover that they were looking for that i don't know how many times i'm like you know i'm investing in real estate I don't know if it's something you're ever interested in, you want to just get the record. Then they say, I want to invest in real estate. I just don't know how to do it. You know, I would love to be involved and in, in help you and get involved in what you're doing. And I'm like, oh, I had, I thought that you would have no interest. Um, but until you ask, you don't know.
0: Yeah, to go back into uh, your answer to the question, um, you are literally one relationship away from to the, moving to the next level, like when you were reaching out to that lender regarding your deal. They said that you didn't have the track record, but they put you in touch with someone. So it was your relationship with that lender that helped you get into your first deal. And I think a lot of people just don't take enough action to, you know, access those doors that they don't see. So I really did, it. Like, like, that really uh, vibrated with me. And I feel like a lot of people can, can learn from that. Yeah. Um. To move into,
1: yeah. Uh, well, I was just going to say, yeah, it can feel like you're treading water for a long time and nothing's happening. But then you keep doing it and things happen. Um. But you just it's persistence. Yeah.
0: 100%. Just taking action every day. Um, so my fourth question, do you have a daily habit that you would credit some of your success to? Hmm.
1: Um, I mean, I, I, I have a few, you know, quite a few daily habits. I mean, I really like, uh, how El, Elrod's book, you know, Miracle Morning, um, you know, I, I, I fall in and out of grace with, you know, staying on top of that. But for me, it's having some time to attempt to clear my head and to really kind of refocus, um, because there's always so many things going on in a given day between business. I have, you know I have two young children. And um, so I try to take at least at least twenty minutes in the morning um, to really, you know essentially meditate and try to just clear my head and and then start focusing and prioritizing what I need to do. And that has allowed me to just think clearly enough to just focus on the decisions that I, I have to make. And so that it's, it's probably the easiest thing I do, but it has very, I can, I can immediately um, relate it to some, you know, good decisions that we've made in the company because I've just, you've taken the time to slow down and take a step back.
0: Yeah. That's all, It's one of my favorite questions to ask. It seems like how Elrod is someone that keeps coming up in that miracle morning. And, Um, It's something that we've applied to our own lives. And it's really you can see the difference when you do that in the morning and then you start your day versus when you don't do it. It seems like everything else just kind of gets away from you. So I really do uh, definitely agree with that. To go into my last question, what is the best way for people in our audience who want to get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, two best ways. You can shoot me an email, spencer at greatcapitallc.com. Or you can hop on over to our website, greatcapitallc.com. Um, and if you do go there, we put out a weekly newsletter sent out every Thursday. Up to date market information, latest research reports. Um, there's a little button to sign up. But um, and then any of our social channels. I'm on Bigger Pockets, uh, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn. Any of those, uh, search Spencer Gray or Gray Capital. Uh, we should pop up.
0: Well, Spencer Gray with Gray Capital. Time, Spencer, and I look forward to staying in touch.
1: Hey, absolutely. Hey, Jeffrey, Kerwin, really appreciate you guys having me on You're doing a great show and a lot of great stuff. I wish I was at your guys' place. Uh, I don't even know how old you are. You seem like you're younger than I am, but you guys have the right mindset. So it's uh, great being on with you guys. Appreciate it. Thank you
0: for listening to the Real Life Monopoly podcast with the Donis Brothers. If you want to learn more about what we do, make sure to visit our website, www.donisinvestmentgroup.com. And if you aren't already, Make sure to follow us on all platforms at Donis Brothers. Let's be great today. Have a good one.